0: You
1: ain't
0: heard nothing yet. Yeah. Get around and let Bubbles know. What no. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Straight him out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why, oh, so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Symbol. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. Mr. the lion! Snap out of it! If you call me Mr. Boy's best friend, is You have no style. You're going to bark all day, little dog. Oh, Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. Mine was very blah, and I'm super glad it's over. But I like to share the positive things, as doing this podcast tends to be my retrospective for me on the week. And those positive things were once again hanging out with my friend and her baby and checking out a restaurant I've been meaning to try for a while. But yeah, real pisser of a week otherwise, so (laughs) glad it's over. I only got around to seeing work movies this week, didn't get into a movie theater. I was very mentally depleted this week. But for the first time, I think, ever, I've actually already seen all of the Oscar Best Picture nominated films there was only one of them I had to watch post the nominations getting announced, which is definitely a record for me. Usually there's at least three or four, just just one. And I had been meaning to see it for a while. It was just you got to have a lot of energy for a two and a half hour for it in film. And it ended up not being super subtitle so it worked out great. But since that's done, I figured I'd do my super scientific rating post favor. I think I do that every year, don't I? If not, here we are. Why am I always hyper the second I put the microphone on? I've been very mellow this morning. Anyway, not that any of you would know that because most of you don't know me. I think I'm finally at the point where most of you that listen actually don't know me personally, but this is far more perky than I've been up to this point this morning. And well, it's almost 1 p.m., but yeah. Anyway, number 10, Maestro. Easiest number 10 ever. It's the only one I genuinely did not like at all. I hated this movie. The performances were great, but the black and white cinematography was trash. And the execution of that story was so painfully basic, I really don't get why the awards people are raving about it. I don't know anyone who has genuinely had a good thing to say about that movie other than, hey, Bradley Cooper made a movie. Anyway, number nine, Barbie... Yeah, yeah, the film had a great message and the beginning and the end are brilliant, but I've never been able to get over that middle chunk when they're in the real world. It's painfully underdeveloped and basic compared to the other eight films nominated for Best Picture. That's why it's that low. If it was only the beginning and the end and the middle somehow matched that as far as quality, it would have been much higher up on the list, but it didn't. So that's where we're at. Eight Killers of the Flower Moon. Again, great movie. Solid filmmaking, way too long. Seven is the Holdovers. And honestly, all anything past Maestro, all banger films, by the way. Which is the first time I think I could ever genuinely say that and not like feel like I was being pretentious. I think these other nine are solid, solid films. But yeah, the holdovers, it's a great quiet film, and it's a wonderful Christmas movie, but I just liked the others better. Six, American fiction, funny, amazing, timely, and frankly tied with five anatomy of of a fall, which was Just, I think, a little bit better for me. I think I liked a little bit more. They're very different films, but it's an incredible courtroom drama. Love those. And I really liked the way they used the different dialects and the languages in this film. I thought it was really, really genius. Four Poor Things, horny, weird, beautiful. This is the only film that I think might take out the most likely winner of Best Picture this year. Three Past Lives, another beautiful, quiet film that I've thought about at least once a week since I've seen it, since I saw it. So, yeah. If you haven't seen that, don't sleep on that one. My runner up is The Zone of Interest. If you remember from a few weeks ago, that that movie messed me up real bad. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. It's, um oh my God. Oh, I do want to see it again, but I'm just like not emotionally in a headspace to deal with that movie again right away. But yeah, if it doesn't win sound design, I will rage. And finally, I don't think this will surprise anyone. My number one pick for Best Picture is Oppenheimer. For me, it's tied with Interstellar as Christopher Nolan's Best Film. I love it and selfishly, I'd really like to see what it's like to work for a studio when a film they made wins Best Picture. It's the first film I started kind of doing stuff for when I started working at my current job. So there's a lot of like emotional stuff tied to it. It worked out really great that it's a really freaking great movie. So yeah, that's my, that's my list. That's my ranking. You don't have to agree. That's just my personal preference based on nothing other than what did I like best. It's just what I personally use as my rubric for movies that Caitlin likes. Also, I'm not touching the Barbie nomination quote-unquote controversy snubs with a 10-foot pole because people get mad over silly stuff these days and I don't need my ratings to take a hit. No, thank you. I will say, however, one thing from a film history perspective, which is, you know, what this podcast is. But Ryan Gosling's performance as Ken, that whole performance that he did, will be studied in acting classes for a very long time. He leveled up supporting acting and comedic acting and just kind of like the himbo role he elevated that archetypal character with that performance and that doesn't mean to say that those who weren't nominated their work was incredible that film they made a moving movie about Barbie like that is a feat but those performances and other things they won't be studied down the line they'll be recognized as the quality that they are but they didn't really change too much as far as the art of filmmaking goes now as far as like you know breaking the glass ceiling for women huge, huge, huge accomplishments. But as far as looking at the art of filmmaking, which is what award shows do, arguable. Don't come at me. That's just my opinion. You don't have to agree. Them's the breaks. sometimes, kids. That's just how awards work sometimes. And honestly, overall, on a weaker year, any of these films, except Maestro, could probably potentially have won Best Picture. It's a really banger year for the quality of the nominated movie. I'm very excited to see how this will shake out. And there's actually some chances there will be some upsets, like particularly in Best Actor, potentially. So it'll be it'll be a fun uh, rest of the season. I am actually looking forward to it this year, other than having to feel like I have to slog my way through it. But yeah, that's that. My Criterion Pick of the Week is a pretty new addition to the Criterion Collection. In fact, the Blu-ray doesn't come out for it for about a month, but it is available to stream currently if... This sounds interesting to you. That is Spine number 1207, which is the heroic trio. I knew nothing about this movie, save the fact that it starred Michelle Yeoh in a very early role of hers. And it's just a cheesy, campy good time. It's a Hong Kong action film and it was a banger and I loved it. And there's a sequel and I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to try to this week. But yeah, could not. Had such a good time watching that movie. And now that I've currently rambled on for about eight and a half minutes before I edit this down, on to this week's topic. This week, we wrap up our look into Italian film genres with the history and makeup of the Spaghetti Western. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. So unlike last week's with Giallo, this is a pretty easy genre to pin down. A spaghetti western is a subgenre of western films that were made by Italian filmmakers primarily from about 1964 to the mid to late 1970s. The genre reached its peak popularity and production in the late 60s and had popularity the world over. Often filmed with low budgets, spaghetti westerns featured anti-heroes for protagonists, flamboyant, vile villains, desert landscapes that looked nothing like the American West but that hardly mattered to people, non-traditional music that was frankly just bangers, and hella violence. The exact origin of the term Spaghetti Western is not known. I mean, it's obvious what the inspiration was. We Italians love spaghetti. Everybody knows that. But as to who coined it first, it be a mystery. The prevailing belief is that this name was created by an American film critic to talk shit about the emerging genre because they didn't like that Italians were capitalizing on their own stuff. Western films by the time the Spaghetti Westerns rose in popularity already had their own look, which the Italian filmmakers used as their baseline. But what was different was that these were far more gritty, far more violent. The heroes were more ambiguous. Just a lot of a lot of blurring of lines. Unlike the moralistic white-hatted cowboys of the traditional American Western, spaghetti westerns often featured dark anti-heroes as the protagonists who had questionable and/or selfish morals, like doing things for money or revenge and not really caring about the carnage or who it might affect. The genre also flipped the book with the plots, and sometimes a happy ending was not to be found. Later westerns in this genre would also more overtly feature commentary on politics of the day and socio-political relations amongst fellow italians we haven't really done a lot of stuff on westerns really on this podcast because if i'm being honest it's not my favorite genre ever and it is one of my big knowledge gaps so i'm working on it but let me give you a little background about kind of what this genre was first if you don't know First and foremost, the Western film is an American made genre that originated in Hollywood and was influenced and inspired by the American frontier of the 1800s. As a film genre, it was incredibly popular, particularly in the 1930s through the 1950s, until the genre, for some reason, just went primarily to television in the 1960s. It was also popular in other eras, but that was kind of its big heyday, and it's the era that the Italians kind of pulled on later. And up to that point, about 40% of all films until television took over are estimated to have been westerns. These films were about the untamed western frontier. Films where the good guys triumphed over evil in an era that was as romantic as it was dangerous. Dozens of cowboy actors made careers for themselves playing the heroes of this oft-fabled era of American history. Emphasis on fabled. Despite these stories being quote-unquote all-American, Westerns became popular all over the world, especially in Europe. When the cowboys took over television, Hollywood began making less Western motion pictures, causing a gap in the market overseas because the television shows weren't going over there and television reached other markets a lot slower because they had to, like, you know, clean up after a war. This empty space in the market would lead to an opportunity for the European filmmakers. In Italy, as we've discussed a couple of weeks ago, sword and sandal films were very popular throughout the 1960s. These were films set in the Greco-Roman period, if you don't listen to all the episodes, and were Italy's answer to similar films of the day in Hollywood like Ben-Hur and Spartacus. By the time we find the Italians this week, this genre was waning in popularity and audiences wanted something new. As this was happening, some Italian filmmakers were making westerns, but they didn't really make a blip on the radar as far as popularity was concerned. They weren't good movies, they weren't bad movies, they just kind of existed. But they were the first western films that were shot in Europe, so they're not insignificant. A few of these were Spanish-Italian westerns, and Spain would later become a major co-financier in the subgenre with Italy as many shot the frontier scenes in Spain. The majority of the spaghetti westerns would actually be co-productions with Italy and another country. In doing so, the western genre as a whole would end up having a bit of Italian flair added to the formula going forward. The fascination with the Western genre amongst the Italian people came out of decades of fascism, during which time the American arts had been censored and banned. Now, an entire decade had passed since the fall of fascism, and the Italians devoured the American literature and films and the like because they loved it and they became obsessed with it. It's not surprising they'd want to put their own spin on the things they loved and were inspired by. That's what everybody does. Fun fact on all this, unrelated to film, but American music was actually so popular amongst the Italians in the 60s and the 70s that an Italian singer got so fed up he studied American, like, dialect and diction to make a gibberish song imitating the sound of English. And the Italians absolutely loved it because a lot of them didn't speak English, so they didn't know it wasn't in English. It's called, like, Prizing Cozy Angelin Chuzo." I'm totally saying that wrong. That's the best attempt I can uh, make on the pronunciation. It is a banger. I will say that. The artist's name is Adriano Celentano, which is way easier to say. Um, if you just type in like Italian gibberish song into Google, it comes up. It's definitely on my Spotify I'd save song. Really, really, really dig that song. I'm not gonna. He, he did a great job. And if you've also ever been curious to hear like what At- English sounds like to someone who doesn't speak English, thank me later. If you haven't noticed from the last two weeks, the Italian film industry quite often would take a Hollywood genre and imitate it, oftentimes trying to pass these Italian films off as, if not from Hollywood, at least American. That's where all the stage names came in. It hid the Italianness a little bit. Ironically, this was done to hide the Italianness from fellow Italians, not the Americans, because that's all the Italian people really wanted. They wanted American films, not Italian films, because America was like this foreign fascinating place to them for some reason. At this time, Italians were amongst the highest cinema-going population in Europe, so naturally the Italian studios and filmmakers and producers and what have you wanted some of that movie money to go to their own industry, so I can't really blame them for trying to be sneaky. If anything, it was industrious. Also around this time, German production companies began making films based on a series of novels written by German author Karl May about the American West. The films are popular in Germany, Spain, and Italy as well, which inspired the Italians to make their own films in that genre. The exact quote-unquote start of the Spaghetti Western in general is disputed, and as a result, technically unknown, since Italy was making Westerns before the mid-1960s. What can't be argued is that the first Spaghetti Western that everybody went gaga over was A Fistful of Dollars from 1964, the second film ever directed by Sergio Leone and starring Clint Eastwood. The film was, in part, inspired by the Japanese film Yojimbo, which was directed by Akira Kurosawa, which itself was based on an American Western story. Leone's goal was to bring that story back to its American frontier roots. Leone hated the imagery of, like, the John Wayne cowboy and wanted a more youthful and just overall different, hipper-looking cowboy for his film. Eastwood was cast after a ton of people said no because the pay was not good, but Leone saw him in an episode of the TV show Rawhide and took his chances. While on a break from the show, Eastwood went to Italy to make the film, allowing him to break away from television roles, as his TV contract wouldn't allow him to shoot films in Hollywood while he was on the show. Italy, however, loophole. Fun fact, Eastwood brought his own costume from Los Angeles for this film. That's how low budget this movie was. A Fistful of Dollars was shot over seven weeks at Cinecitta for about $200,000 and on location in Spain. Did Spain look like the American West? Absolutely not, but they thought it did and no one else really cared. A Fistful of Dollars was a massive hit the world over despite not getting great reviews in its day and turned Clint Eastwood into a film star in Europe. The movie wouldn't make it to the U.S. until about 1967 because of copyright issues stemming from Kurosawa and Yojimbo. Leone followed up the film with For a Few Dollars More from 1965, and finally the most famous of the three, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly from 1966. These movies make up what is known as Leone's Dollars Trilogy, and each one starred Eastwood as the man with no name, a drifter who comes to town to fight off some bad guys for his own financial gains. Fistful of Dollars and The Good, the Bad and the Ugly are often considered to be among the best spaghetti westerns ever made. And Fistful of Dollars coming out was the breakthrough that created an industry where soon nearly half of every Italian film produced was a spaghetti western. The floodgates had opened. After 1964, dozens and dozens of Italian westerns got made every year until about 1969. Italy was producing about 300 films a year, and about half of those were westerns. Taking inspiration from the Dollars trilogy, these films always featured an antihero protagonist with a secret agenda who played on both sides of the law. There would also be betrayal and revenge and plenty of death and maiming and cutting and bleeding and shooting and getting shot and all that good stuff. The script formula stated that about every 10 minutes, something action-forward had to happen, whether it be a chase, a shootout, a fistfight, what have you. The cynicism of these films also reflected the Italian youth's outlook at the time, which is what drove them to the films. Spaghetti Westerns were often shot on low budgets, making their money back, even if they didn't really get a whole lot of eyes on them, because it just wasn't a lot of money that was spent. Many of these films also used a technique known as technoscope, Which involves shooting with spherical lenses using a shorter but wider frame on a 35 millimeter film strip, which gave a look similar to Cinemascope, which was very popular at the time and what they were just kind of going for was basically discount Cinemascope, which is just very, very wide format. It was a gimmick that Hollywood studios, that and like VistaVision were doing to try and get people to like leave their living rooms with the TV in it to go see the big, big, big screen instead. So that's what Tetanoscope was. The resulting image was, like I said, widescreen, and it had a ton of film grain, which became a hallmark for the genre's general vibe. The big frame also led the filmmakers to play around with composition in the frame, which invented a ton of new visual styles. It's very, very cool. It's hard to describe, but there's lots of things to find online, and I'll put some links in the show notes. Leone also directed Once Upon a Time in the West from 1968, often regarded as the best spaghetti western of all time and frankly one of the best westerns ever made. If you only want to see one of these films, not everyone's a western person. I get it. Make sure you see a Leone to get like the best idea of this genre's makeup. He's also just a genius filmmaker in general. Once Upon a Time in the West, unlike many of the other spaghetti westerns, was actually a big-budget affair, as it was co-produced by Paramount Pictures. Leone intended to make it be his final western film. That's why a part of the movie involves the railroad to the West being completed. The introduction of mass transportation meant that the West is no longer rural and isolated from the quote-unquote civilized world. Therefore, the story of the West is over. Another major director of this movement is Sergio Corbucci, who directed some of the most violent of the spaghetti westerns, including Django from 1966 and The Great Silence from 1968. Both films featured characters that either barely spoke or, in the case of The Great Silence, were mute. Django featured a quote-unquote hero that didn't really speak, which, while the filmmakers claimed was part of, like, the character, it was actually hiding something else. The budget for the film was so small that the producers couldn't afford to hire an American actor, so they got an Italian and just had him not talk that much. In post, they dubbed his voice, as they did with everybody, we'll talk about that in a second, and not particularly well. If you get like annoyed by lips not matching up, um, you're going to have a bad time with these movies. I just try to look at their noses and their eyes because, yeah, that I'm one of those people that bothers, which is one of my big holdups with this genre, despite like it's something I should probably know more about than I do. But, you know, baby steps with this episode. Django became the baseline for more violence to be shown on screen in the spaghetti westerns going forward. And the general look of the film is not what you typically associate with a western. Namely, it was a lot more gray in color, which makes the blood really pop on the screen. And there was quite a bit of it. It also looks a little bit more like maybe a horror movie than like what you'd associate with a western. And they also like cut off a dude's ear and feed it to him in this movie. And it's... What? It's a... (laughs) One of the documentaries I watched, they kept reshowing that clip and I'm like, please stop for the love of God. But now I know where the uh, reservoir dog scene came from. It definitely came from that because Tarantino loves these movies anyway. Django was also insanely popular with audiences, and over 30 unofficial sequels for the film followed to take advantage of the popularity. Franco Nero, the star of the film, would become a huge movie star in the Spaghetti Western genre, and several of his films would see him playing a character called Django, despite there being no real relationship to the first Django he played. Soon, actors who weren't getting the roles they wanted in Hollywood, or who were character actors looking to break out of that mold, went to Italy in the hopes of becoming the next Spaghetti Western star. This included actors like Burt Reynolds, Orson Welles, and Lee Van Cleef. Now, of course, these films featured actors from several different countries, which meant everyone was speaking several different languages. As a result, most Spaghetti Westerns were completely shot silent and the voices are dubbed in later. On set, the actors spoke their lines in their mother tongues. That was also a reason why the main character in The Great Silence was mute cut down some of that time in post. By the end of the 1960s, a desire for social change was surging through the world, and this change saw a shift in what was on the screen. This led to a second wave of films that saw spaghetti westerns that were a little bit more politically charged. Another director, Sergio Solima, was the most political of the three Sergios, quote-unquote, of the spaghetti westerns, and his films kind of led the charge in that respect. Solima had his own trilogy of films with The Big Gundown* from 1966, Face to Face from 1967, and Run Man Run from 1968. These films are recognized also as belonging to a subgenre of spaghetti westerns, which is the Zabata Westerns, which put the focus on a Mexican protagonist instead of a Caucasian cowboy. Salima's films were especially popular in the continent of Africa and other underdeveloped nations, as they typically featured characters who rebelled against the powers that be more so, or like just like colonizers and industrialists in general. Salima would go on to say that he disagrees that his films were political rather than they showcased, quote unquote, ideology in his own words. But everything that showed up in his films was deliberate. And he left his thesis up on the screen, basically. These films also kind of bring up the fact that there's a whole thing, like a controversy and overlook, you know, a whitewashing of cowboys in Hollywood films um, and showing them as primarily white. When in reality, they were actually several different races, including Chinese. But that's a deep dive for another day. But the West was far more diverse than Hollywood would uh, have you think. By the 1970s, the Spaghetti Western had fallen out of popularity altogether. The filmmakers, like they would with the giallo genre, had begun to focus more on gimmicks and long titles to try and entice audiences as the format of the Spaghetti Western became tired. This included the 1971 film Blind Man, which featured, you guessed it, a blind hero. Django Kill, a 1967 film directed by Julio Questi, is especially bizarre. It features a gang of black clad men who assault young boys, and there's a lot of scenes in it that are very homoerotic and others that look out of place and more like sequences from a horror film. It's, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched a lot of clips and it was freaking just, I mean, I always, I overuse the word weird, but bizarre is bizarre better? Just out of place. Yeah. As this degradation happened and the genre became more and more diluted from the weirdness, there's weirdness again. Damn it, Caitlin. There were less of strict actual spaghetti westerns being made. And some of the other ones that were being produced were more lighthearted and comedic in tone and were basically parodies. Among these were Little Rita Mae West from 1967, which was a musical, not something I would associate with like, you know, a fistful of dollars as well as the film Trinity is Still My Name from 1971, which was a sequel to the film Trinity is My Name. The former, the sequel, became the most financially successful Italian Western of all time. Naturally, there was an enclave of similar films and spin-offs of the Trinity films because money. While these films have their own fans in their own right, they are a far fall from what made the spaghetti Western genre unique, and the genre as a whole had pretty much died out by the late 1970s. Sergio Leone had tried to make a film that commented on this shift in attitudes towards the genre, with 1973's My Name is Nobody, but the damage had been done. The Spaghetti Western had been reduced to a joke. Why would anyone take them seriously? While other genres took over the production resources, or most of them, like the Western genre itself, the spaghetti Westerns never fully faded away. A sequel to the film Django was made in 1987, over 20 years after the first one, and starred Franco Nero, the original hero. The film was called Django Strikes Again and is the only official sequel to the first Django film. Clint Eastwood had made his name in Italy as a cowboy and continued making his own westerns in Hollywood, like The Outlaw Josie Wales, which came out in the mid-70s, and Unforgiven, which came out in, I think, 91 or 92, and actually won Best Picture at the Oscars. Outlaw Josie Wales was part of a kind of quote unquote revisionist Western subgenre, which emerged around the same time as the spaghetti Westerns or kind of in response to them, depending on who you ask. It's also known as anti-Western and post-Western, and these films, like their Italian cousins, flip the Western tropes on their heads, featuring elements to create films that challenged the Western genre of old. Because spaghetti westerns were so low budget and so many of them became cult favorites, mainstream and popular directors like Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez have directed several films that definitely remind one of the spaghetti western. For Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, pretty big example, and actually allude to this genre of films extensively, as Leonardo DiCaprio's character in the film is offered a contract to go make a few spaghetti westerns, as his Hollywood career floundered. Rodriguez famously made a trilogy about a mariachi gunslinger, which has elements of the Zabato western. John Woo's action films also pull heavily from the spaghetti western genre, as did many Chinese Hong Kong action films of the 80s and 90s. A lot of action characters, especially ones from like the 1980s and 90s in Hollywood, likely owe a lot of their nuance to the Spaghetti Western. Yes, they're good guys, quote unquote, but they've definitely flirted with the dark side and they're not afraid to make a hard decision or do something maybe a little immoral for the greater good or their greater good, rather. They're also stylish, wisecracking, and they'll have their revenge no matter the cost. Spaghetti Westerns represent a financially fruitful era of the Italian film industry and is probably its most prosperous, you know, like, per, per capita of cost of movie. The Italians proved that an international film community could make and leave their own mark on a Hollywood genre before riding off into the sunset. Listen, stranger. Can you get the idea? We don't like to see bad boys like you in town. Go get your mule. You let him get away from you. <laughs> you see, that's what I want to talk to you about. He's feeling real bad. Huh? My mule. You see, he got all riled up when you men fired those shots at his feet. Hey, you making some kind of joke? Mm, no. You see, I understand you men were just playing around, but the mule he just doesn't get it. Of course, if you were to all apologize. <laughs> 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 I don't think it's nice you laughing You see, my mule don't like people laughing It's the crazy idea you're laughing at him Now, if you apologize like I know you're going to I might convince him that you really didn't mean it and that's going to do it for this week. This was a big month of reading a lot of things. I really I really started January off with a bang, man. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you please rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee. I went to the grocery store early this morning because I needed chipotle powder and just got a big jug of cold brew because it's the same cost as getting a coffee in Los Angeles at least. And I also got this like Chobani creamer that's like white chocolate raspberry. And it is what I imagine cocaine is addiction-wise, it's so good. But yeah, if that's at your grocery store, it's a little expensive for coffee creamer, but I was in a treat-myself mood, so... Um and unfortunately a, I think a bad habit has been born. Anyway, I've also got merch. Check it out the link in the show notes, the always the throwaway line. Next month, and the reason why I wanted to put the Spaghetti Western last, we're going to take a look at the careers and lives of some of the most famous movie cowboys ever to hit Hollywood. Thanks again for listening and until next time, that's a wrap.